Welcome to the Battlefest podcast, the place to be to catch up on all debates and discussions from the Battle of Ideas Festival 2021. The following debate is called Will Green Jobs Save Us? In the chair is Rob Lyons. Welcome to this final session of the day in the Strand, the Battle for the Economy. My name is Rob Lyons. You may have seen me from earlier sessions, and I'm the convener of the Academy of Ideas Economy Forum which has been helping to produce this strand of debate. Uh, this session is entitled, Will Green Jobs Save Us? Um, the idea of revitalizing the economy through green policies really seems to have got some political momentum now. In particular, there is the idea that we can not only create jobs as we transition to a low carbon economy, but that actually these will be better quality jobs as well. Uh, Joe Biden's American Jobs Plan will spend hundreds of billions on supporting electrical, electric vehicle manufacturing, revitalizing the power network and in implementing carbon capture and storage. In the UK, the Green Jobs Task Force aims to create 2 million jobs in the low carbon economy by 2030. But is creating jobs in this way a good use of resources? Will the drive to net zero actually make things more expensive and reduce economic growth? Or is it simply a necessity in order to combat climate change with green jobs as a beneficial side effect? That's some of the stuff that we may um, look at. And to discuss this some more, we have an excellent panel of speakers here for you uh, to kick us off. Um, I'm going to just give the most basic biographies um, uh, just now. Uh, please do visit the Battle of Ideas website for more information on our uh, illustrious speakers. So... The order they're going to speak, so on my immediate left is Martin Powell. He's head of sustainability at Siemens Inc. He is a former mayoral advisor to Boris Johnson on the environment, and he is the editor of The Climate City, which he says is the easiest way to write a book is to be the editor of it. Um, to my immediate right is Ben Powell. He's a writer, researcher, and filmmaker who focuses on energy and environmental politics and the relationship between science and society. Uh, on my far left, I get, I'm not going to make the far left joke again, like Rob yeah. Killett, because she's not on the far left. For, uh, Professor Vicky Price is C Chief Economic Advisor and a board member at the Centre for Economics and Business Research. She's author of many books, including Women versus Capitalism and Greekonomics. And uh, it's the economy stupid, Economics for Voters. And then finally, but not least, uh, Daniel Benami is a journalist who has worked for a variety of of a national specialist and international publications. He is also an author, author of Ferraris for All in Defense of Economic Progress and Cowardly Capitalism. So the speakers will each speak for five to seven minutes to give us their introductory thoughts. But as ever with the Battle of Ideas, it's all about you. And so we'll come over to you for your thoughts and comments and questions after that. So Martin, the floor is yours. Great, thank you very much. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, I thought, given I'm going first, that I would define what a green job is. And the UN says, and I quote, uh, positions in agriculture, manufacturing, R&D, administrative and service activities aimed at substantially preserving or restoring environmental quality. Wow. Um, there are then 400 articles on Google which um, talk about the challenges of defining a green job, unsurprisingly. Um, the Guardian, 
does a slightly better job. They say jobs that have a direct and positive impact on the planet. This uh, then defines a much narrower uh, range, such as renewable energy, electric transport, energy efficiency, nature conservation. The problem with that is that we are just listing things that, we, that sound green and maybe excluding things that are even greener and possibly don't get the right attention. I'll come back to that in a moment. We did a study of the 100 biggest cities uh, in the world, um, and they show that in 10 years, they'll create 28 million additional green jobs. But it would take me about 90 minutes to describe the methodology, and that's the whole issue, right? Is that who knows what a green job is? What exactly does this ad additional job look like? Uh, I would argue that in the race to low carbon, every job has the potential to be a green job. Um, it is a political construct, but it could be a means of achieving some really sustainable outcomes. Let me just give you a few quick facts. Population of the planet today is 7.7 .7 billion. It's going to rise to 10 billion in 2050. Okay? That's going to take 60% more land for agriculture. And why? Because China and India are simply having a much greater increase in middle class and they're going to we're going to just consume much more land. More species are being made extinct than ever before. Today, we produce 5 million tons of waste per day as a planet. And again, by 2050, that's going to rise to 8 million tons per day. And there is nowhere left to put it. Um, and only, according to The Guardian again, only 3% of the world's ecosystems remain intact. So given those facts, if we could prove you have a process that improves the environment or has long-term sustainability, or it's just better than what we're doing today, you should give that a green job status. Give it incentives, even give it a tax break. Let everybody out there think harder to prove that their approach qualifies as making the planet more sustainable. And I'll give you four quick examples, super quick. Um, a liquid natural gas pipeline that runs over indigenous land in Canada, you might immediately think this is not a green project. Uh, Greta would say no, um, but if you think about what this project is doing, it's producing liquid natural gas. The particular project sent 80% of that to India where it replaced kerosene, okay? And um, the number of people now not using kerosene but are using liquid natural gas, which is cleaner, safer, healthier, uh, I would argue is a super clean job. The issue of the indigenous land is not a green issue yet, but we can maybe debate that later. Second example, um, Saturday night's discarded takeaway in London um, would run every single London bus. Okay, if you take that food waste, put it in an anaerobic digester, produce biogas, turn it into hydrogen, you could fuel all of London's buses. Now, the issue is that you've got to go around and collect all of that takeaway waste, right? So we have to think about all the diesel trucks that are collecting that waste. What's that going to do versus all of the clean buses that we create in the process? Let somebody out there think about what they could do. Third, uh, carbon neutral steel production. We know the world is growing. We're going to produce steel. It's going to keep going. So why don't we produce it in a carbon neutral way? This is fantastic. I've seen a project that uses spent coking coal and other waste from mining 
what's wrong with that? This should be considered green because it's better than using traditional sources, okay? And then my fourth example, um, urban modular construction. So we're now seeing big high-rises going up in cities. They're now being built outside of the city, more efficient, less noise, less CO2, less deliveries, better air quality as a result. They're being constructed in a much cleaner, safer, better way. Why can't those be all considered green jobs, been given tax breaks and incentives? So my argument is anything that reduces CO2, improves air quality, should be classed as a green job. Make the business case, give them incentives and tax breaks. Greta says, and I agree with her on this, our ecosystems are collapsing. But if we look at the world through both an economic and environmental lens, make society really value the environment, give it a proper classification, um, then that's, that's the way to go. And I believe these ideas are so strong, we should just skip over the other panellists and go straight to the Q&A. Thank you. Excellent start, Martin. Right, over to you, Ben. Um, yeah, I um, would like to just slightly take issue with some of the blurb in the introduction. And I think that we've, the, uh, we've heard a lot about green jobs for quite a long time. So this isn't, this isn't just a, a post-COVID or a post-Greta thing. Um, uh, the first I really started uh, noticing green jobs was in the wake of the Climate Change Act 2008, um, since when I think we've had 13 years of an unopposed green agenda with very little scrutiny in Parliament or, or within, from within civil society. Uh, so under that, under that uh, legislation, uh, we had Gordon Brown in 2009 declaring a Green New Deal, the first of many Green New Deals, uh, in which he declared uh, there would be 400,000 new green jobs in the environmental sector by 2017. Uh, and that was underpinned by a Burr analysis, or a DEC analysis, I forget which, but uh, the, 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 the environmental sector would be worth £107 billion to the UK economy every year. Um, oh, sorry, it already was. Uh, and that there would be 1.2 million green jobs by 2017. I don't think that needs a spoiler, and I think that we can assess uh, what, uh, the, the progress towards green jobs uh, from these, uh, the, the, these policies. Uh, under the Green Deal, there was also the Great British Refurb, which you've probably never heard of, uh, in which uh, every loft and cavity wall in the country was going to be insulated by 2015. Uh, smart meters were going to be installed in every home by 2020. And 7 million homes were going to have a whole house upgrade by last year. Uh, then the coalition government in 2011 gave its answer, the Green Deal, not the new Green New Deal, but the Green Deal, which was a similar grants and loans scheme. And it promised 250,000 jobs, retrofitting 26 million homes. Um, but after two years of implementation from 2013 to 2015, only 15,000 homes had taken the offer. So the scheme was cancelled due to a lack of public interest. Um, and that, that policy was underpinned by a DEC analysis which claimed that the green economy was worth £122 billion to the wider UK economy uh, uh, that year. Uh, then we skip through the Brexit years and we get Johnson's government promising another green industrial revolution, which by my account was about the third, or the fourth green industrial revolution that the government was going to create. And their uh, policy in August 2020 
was the Green Homes Grant Scheme, which offered part payment of uh, the cost of install installing energy efficient improvements in people's homes. Uh, but even free money only persuaded 60,000 homes to part with their share of the costs, and the scheme collapsed in April this year. Now, what I think these policy failures represent is the only measure that there exists of the public support for the climate agenda, and I, I think that's fundamental. As of March this year, only 35% of homes had advanced smart means meter installations. 19 million homes at least remain incompatible with the net zero agenda uh, and the targets therein. Uh, and now we, as we've seen from the last three or four weeks of news, we're now facing very real energy supply and affordable crises. Uh, the 2009 and 2013 promises of new jobs and the economic analysis that underpins them that I referred to um, were, were produced from uh, estimates of the green economy produced by Burr, BIS and DEC variously. Um, and I, I, uh, I challenged them on how they were defining uh, the green economy and green jobs. So I was quite pleased to hear uh, Martin recognise that that's a problem. At the time, that those estimates included the £9 billion per year market for doors and windows. Uh, they included the £12 billion worth of sales. Excuse me, sorry. It included £12 billion worth of sales of propane, LPG and LNG. These are fossil fuels. So the guy working on the till at a petrol station, petrol station Forecourt has a green job. Right. Uh, there are more sensible estimates of, of the green economy, um, but those were the ones that have been chosen by the government to underpin its flagship policies. Um, and what that shows us is, as Martin has pointed out, green is an extremely flexible and extremely subjective and political category. Uh, the green industrial revolution, then, uh, and green jobs are extremely tenuous propositions that, after 13 years of political consensus, MPs have been unable to shed any light on or how their targets are going to be achieved. Uh, what we have now is a few vague promises that ICE cars, uh, petrol and diesel cars, are going to be abolished and the gas boiler is going to be abolished. But there are remaining some huge questions about how they're going to be replaced and what the consequences of those are. I'm going to have to skip forward a bit. Um, this doesn't look to me like any kind of industrial revolution. It's an orgy of regulation, right? It's putting the policy cart before the technology horse, and it creates targets in the hope that the market will magic a solution to the problems that those policies have created. Um, but rather than making things cheaper, uh, things have been made more expensive, and rather than things being made abundant, they've been made scarce. Um, so what I think is going on here, because it seems at face value to be quite an irrational process, is that today's politicians are drawing on uh, political mythology like New Deal, so you can just add the word green to New Deal and you're just FDR, changing the economy and changing global politics for the better. Um, and this creates a kind of loop of historical pastiche, green New Deals, building back better, 
in which these rather silly notions are endlessly reproduced uh, as, as uh, more political slogans like Build Back Better. Uh, and if you think that sounds a bit far-fetched, then take a look at your next energy bill, which looks like it's going to head to £2,000 a year or more, and ask where and when the Industrial Revolution is, because it's not now. Okay, thank you very much. Two pretty divergent points of view there. Uh, Vicky, your thoughts? Thank you. Well, uh, we've been asked to speak about this in the middle of a gas crisis, uh, which is affecting lots of energy-intensive sectors quite significantly, and they may indeed uh, get into, into trouble, might even cease production. Uh, for a number of firms are saying that at present. And, uh, of course, we have a fuel crisis as well, which, you know, I, I still find that my local uh, petrol station has no, no petrol. Um, so, and here we are talking about climate change. And, of course, it can be taken as a huge encouragement for moving faster down the route of uh, renewables and sorting our problem. But we have a huge, huge transitional issue to deal with, which uh, the cost of which I think has been underestimated to a very significant extent. But thinking about how people feel, and I think that was just mentioned now, uh, I, I found it quite interesting that uh, a recent survey suggested that both older people, like myself, and younger people, um, in fact, are pretty uh, agreed on the need to tackle it. The question is, of course, Know how you do it. And I think it's just worth reminding ourselves how we got to where we are. I mean, there's the Stern's analysis. I saw, lots, I heard lots of mentions of biz, burr, deck, and so on. So for those the un uninitiated, these are sort of acronyms for departments, a number of, for a number of which I have worked. Um, and I was working for uh, Nick Stern when he produced the, the Stern Review. Uh, and of course, what his findings finally did is bring the economics into science. We knew the science was there and was saying something, but actually calculating the costs of what the transition would be, uh, would require, and uh, both in terms of adaptation and mitigation. I mean, just remember the, the latest meetings have all been, and also COP26, uh, will focus quite significantly on what you need to be transferring to developing nations to just adapt to climate change. But that, of course, includes also an awful lot of expert knowledge, industrial knowledge, in terms of what it is that can substitute what you're using at present. But remember that the way that this was uh, presented at the time that now the IPCC and others and also our own climate change committee here agrees with is that there is likely to be a very significant potential loss to GDP if we don't act, and that potential loss could be anywhere between 5% to 20% each year. And what he did is he recommended that the world should spend at least 1% of global GDP per annum, hopefully 2%, to avoid the worst outcome. And 2% is to ensure that temperatures stabilize at an acceptable level. Now, that's a lot of cash if you want to be calculating what this means. And for, for us at the time, the cost-benefit was clear. You start acting immediately, including imposing a carbon tax, Combine that with other environmental taxes, the type of stuff that Martin was talking about, or he did, perhaps he didn't talk about taxes, but he talked about the environment, to incentivize the reduction of carbon emissions. So, um, and he calculated, actually, that the social cost of carbon was about $85 a tonne. It's way below still, but it is rising right now, which, of course, is, again, co uh, causing quite a lot of concern for the energy-intensive sectors at present. But what he did do, which I think is rather interesting, and for which he was criticized, we were criticized, is that we looked at what individuals actually prefer to do in the short term versus the long term. There is such a thing as, which is called the social time preference. 
and it's perceived that, that you know generally we want we value things we can do now much more than whatever may be happening perhaps in the future so you have quite a sort of a high discount rate uh, really for anything that may happen in the future you much prefer to have it done now um, so for example if we invested 100 pounds now and the maturity is after 100 years the normal discount rate you'd use for that would be that the pounds that what you're spending now is only worth five pounds now. So you wouldn't do it if you were in any way a sensible person. So what, uh, in fact, Stern did is he actually reduced the social discount rate um, in his calculations very significantly, forced also the Green Book to do the same, which is the Treasury's way of calculating any expenditure and whether it's worth it. And that sort of made it into acceptability, even though there were still some professors who were against it. So that has been the basis for which we're now... Uh, you know, have bought the idea that something needs to be done. Plus, of course, the scientists have also been coming out with a lot more evidence of what is, is happening right now. But you have some idea, roughly, of what the cost should be if you were really worried about the, the, the next generation. You're really worried about what may happen even 50 years after you die. Uh, and that's, that's how, in fact, a lot of those costs uh, have come about. And that's how also a lot of the subsidies for solar and wind uh, have come about, and how some of the taxes, which of course we are all paying in electricity bills, have also come. The levies, which are going to go up now, as we heard, uh, in, if we read the papers today, in order to fund some of the transition to even more uh, renewables and therefore reduce, reduce the types of costs in the future. And in reality, if you do that, then you will indeed have cheaper energy, but the transition cost, as we're now seeing, is, is huge. So just just to, to talk then about what does it mean for green jobs if you're embarked down that route, however badly we may have done it. So the policies have not been very consistent. There's no doubt about that. The money that hasn't been as, uh, particularly large in the UK. But if we look at general estimates, we're talking about sort of tens of trillions uh, of, of dollars that need to be spent across the world. And a lot of it needs to be spent in the next 10 years. That affects what happens in manufacturing and what types of jobs we're talking about. But at the end of the day, all the jobs, just as you were saying, are green jobs. There's no point in making fun of whether you're at a petrol station, you know, filling the car. Uh, at the end of the day, if whatever it is that you're doing is, is reducing, is more energy efficient, then it's a sort of green job. And if you're recycling a lot more, which is another huge way of achieving this, then it's a green job. It may not deal with the whole problem, but you are uh, much more efficient in relation to to uh, the environment. But just the costs in Europe, to, to just give you a comparison of, of where we are here, uh, Christine Lagarde, who's the head of the ECB, gave a speech written, obviously, by her uh, experts on climate change, uh, where she was saying that what was required in Europe was spending, and they are getting there, of 360 billion euros a year. Uh, and that's all in manufacturing activities or alternatives to, to fossil fuels. Um, between now and 2030 alone, uh, which was a must. And there was also another element where I think manufacturing and the, the way you do manufacturing is going to be affected very significantly, which is the digital transformation that's required. Energy efficiency is a must, and 125 billion was uh, expected to need to be spent a year uh, on digital transformation in order to achieve uh, the targets that are there. So it's huge, we mustn't underestimate it, there's enough money around in the markets with green bonds beginning to become quite effective to fund this. It will really mean a very substantial transformation in the way things are done. And that's why I think that 
everything that we do in the future is going to be green, whether we like it or not. Daniel. Okay, thanks, Rob. Uh, well, what I want to do is to approach the question from the opposite direction of everyone else. Uh, and what I mean by that is that the others, and it's a legitimate approach, have broadly talked about jobs, and then they've talked about, okay, what does this mean if we have green jobs? Whereas what I want to do is to think about what does saving us mean? Uh, what do we need to do to save us? And then how, then how do jobs fit into that discussion? And I think that one reason for doing that is to bypass the problems of definition of green jobs, which all of the speakers have agreed on, maybe one of the few things they've all agreed on. So, uh, in short, I mean, I think what we need to do is to raise productivity. And what I mean by that is that, on average, uh, everyone in society is producing more. So that's not talking about everyone working really long hours or working really, really hard physically. It's talking about investing more in technology, promoting innovation, so that on average we can, as a society and as an economy, we can produce more. And I think if we do that, we can be saved. I mean, I don't really like the terminology, but I like the blurb. Uh, we can be saved in two senses, because I think we're talking about two problems here. We're talking about the economic mess that we're in, and I think we might disagree about the character of the economic problems we're facing, but probably most people here would agree that, uh, particularly post-COVID, although it doesn't not only about COVID, uh, the British economy and the world economy more generally is facing big economic problems, so we need to be saved in that sense. And I do think there's a problem of climate change, and to be very clear about this, people can disagree with me, but so people know where I'm coming from, I do think climate change is a problem, uh, but I don't think it's an emergency. I think it's a problem that we, can be, that we can tackle through the application of science and technology and innovation. Uh, and I think higher productivity helps us do this because uh, if we have more resources in society, if we have better technology, then we can deal with these problems. Uh, so, you know, if we, have, if we produce more... Uh, we can afford to pay, for example, for the uh, kind of extra hospital care that we might need in order to solve the problems that we face. Uh, we can afford to decarbonise the uh, economy in a rational way, for example, not exclusively, but for example, by building a lot more nuclear power stations. We can afford to do that if we have a more productive economy. Now, to be clear, what I'm talking about when I talk about a more productive economy, I'm not talking about everyone in society, including the elderly and young kids working. And not even talking about everyone of working age working in a part of the economy which is primarily about producing more goods and services. I'm talking about a, a strong, productive core of the economy which can then carry other parts of society to the extent that it needs to. That's a key thing we need to do. Uh, so, for example, uh, I think one thing that's become clear over the last couple of years is that we probably do need to devote more resources to the health service as well as reorganising it, but that's a whole different discussion. Uh, but that takes uh, resources in, in order to be able to do that. We do need to, I think it was a subject of a discussion in another session here, we do need to spend a lot more on social care. Uh, social care taking care of the elderly in particular and the disabled. And in the social care sector, 
your priority is not productivity. You know, your productivity is looking after the elderly. It's probably, although you can use technology to a degree, it's quite a labour-intensive task to do that. So I think if we have a strong, more productive economy, we can create more jobs in the social care sector. Now, most people wouldn't define those as green jobs. Of course, if you say every job is a green job, then by definition it's a green job, but fine if you want to do that. But uh, having a more productive economy enables us to produce more jobs in relation to social care, for example. So as well as being more productive, as well as producing more, we can also create jobs where we think it's important, even when those jobs themselves are not particularly uh, productive in the sense of producing goods and services. They're very important jobs. Uh, and similarly, in the health sector, we can do more. Or if we want to produce, uh, to have a lot more nuclear power stations, new generation nuclear power stations, which I think we should have. I don't think it's the complete solution to the problem of climate change, but I think it's an important and often neglected element of that. Okay, you can, if you want, I don't really care, you can label the... Uh, uh, construction of those nuclear power stations as green jobs, and the people who work in those power stations as green jobs, uh, that's fine. I don't really care about the definition. I think we need to do that. On the other hand, if you have an energy policy, which is basically a kind of panic energy policy, which is saying, oh, my God, we've got a climate crisis. We need to kind of immediately just go to uh, uh, just entirely on renewables and wind and solar and so on. Yeah, I'm not against wind and solar in principle. But if you just have a kind of panic policy, which it seems to me is what we have at the moment, a kind of policy of permanent panic, you may create jobs in those kind of areas, but in many senses it makes the economic plight that we face worse. Because if you have really expensive energy, uh, th that doesn't solve the economic problems Britain is facing. It doesn't save us in the sense of getting us, into the, getting us out of the economic mess that we're in. It makes the situation worse. And I think that, to me, it's really clear. If you look at energy policies in Britain, in Germany, in other countries, uh, One minute. They've, talked, they've talked for many, many years about uh, having a more green energy policy. And very often it hasn't made... Uh, hasn't reduced carbon emissions in many cases, but it's made energy a lot more expensive. Of course, and just to wind up on this, uh, exactly how we raise productivity, that is a really big challenge. That's a difficult thing to do. Bob, uh, Boris Johnson spoke a lot about it at the, uh, the Conservative Party conference, but he was just paying lip service to it. He was just saying we need to raise productivity. Doesn't really seem to have a clue about how to do it, but I think that's, that's the real challenge we're facing. Not creating green jobs, which I think is a meaningless concept because it's defined in so many different ways, as all the panel seems to more or less agree. But how do we raise productivity? And then how do we use that increased productivity to help create jobs in the sectors where we need more jobs and where we don't necessarily want them to be highly productive? Okay, thanks, Daniel. Right, it's over to you. So um, there's, there's quite a bit on the table, really. It's like, first of all, is this drive to net zero perhaps a desirable thing, particularly from an economic point of view? Um, even if you think it's a, a good thing from a climate change point of view, is that actually going to make the economy worse or better? I mean, the, the, the sales pitch of a lot of this, this is Green New Deals or various Green Deals that have been discussed is that not only will you reduce emissions, but you'll actually increase you know, economic activity and create good jobs. Um, so... Is that a worthwhile thing? Is the best way of doing that simply by 
heading towards net zero by just cutting emissions, or are we going to actually make, as Daniel says, the economic situation worse? Um, your thoughts and questions, and also there's been a few terms thrown around like discount rate. So if you want to know more about that, somebody to explain discount rate uh, further, then that's absolutely fine as well. Uh, yeah, so I'm coming at this from quite a uh, naive perspective, I openly admit. Um, but one thing that's always struck me is, is there a risk of acting too soon in a certain context? And by I mean that, say we invest loads and loads of money in the electric cars, but in five years, actually hydrogen cars come along, but we've got a fleet of electric cars that still require coal, uh, carbon energy and things like this to fuel. So are we going to find that if we just say we need green jobs here, here, and here, everywhere, that actually we spent a bunch of money on something in five to ten years is just as difficult and unbeneficial as what we might have now. Yeah, great. Good, good start. Yeah. Um, so I think um, jobs are a cost fundamentally. And when it comes to energy, I know this debate isn't about energy. We want the fewest number of people um, producing energy. Uh, because that raises costs, they could be doing something else. If we could make energy as plentiful and as cheap as possible, that would then free up uh, capital, money, people, labour, to then do jobs, as uh, Daniel said, social care, all things like cleaning up our parks and our lakes and stuff and making our environment a nicer place um, to sort of live. So I know no one sort of said... Uh, green jobs are necessarily about energy generation. Uh, but that's one thing I would say is a version of a bad green job. If it takes an extra 100 people and more money to produce the same uh, energy, then that's a net loss. However, though, totally up for uh, more of us spending money, that, that uh, uh, energy surplus, that cash surplus, on things such as picking up litter or um, rewilding certain parts of the country, which will make the environment uh, globally and locally a lot better. Okay. Uh Yes. Hi. Um, I um, think that uh, you know, back in the 70s, they started um, forcing productivity in cars by putting up the price of petrol. Now when you buy a, a litre of petrol, at least half of it's going to the government. So much so that they are um, worried that if we all move to electric vehicles, which luckily we won't be able to because we don't have the lithium, but... Um, uh, how will the, the Treasury make up this money of lost revenue? So it's, um, but I think there is a danger of extrapolation because um, uh, our first speaker said that 60% of land will be used in agriculture, you know, um, and in fact the opposite has happened. Over the years, not only have cars become much more efficient, but so have farmers. And we are getting much more milk out of half the number of cows we had even 20 years ago. The, the figures that DEFRA publish regularly are, are quite extraordinary. Um, and more and more animals are getting kept in sheds, so that you're using less land, and they're now talking about feeding them seaweed and things like that. So, um, you know, I think that we are going along a productivity way, and we are finding better ways of doing things. And, and, and often it's a market mechanism that forces that. By When the price goes up, people find better ways to supply it. Uh huh. That's okay. not really a question. Sorry. No, no, that's that's, that's good. Quite, it doesn't have to be a question. It can be a point as well. We're very interested in stimulating a debate here. Uh, my take on the environmental issues is is it's more like the um, the fable of chicken licking. The what? <laughs> the fable of chicken licking. But a lot of people are excited about environmental issues that they haven't actually seen evidence of. 
So for me, I, I just think that, you know, as, as, as you um, pointed out, government regulation has failed. Um, free market has said no to all these, um, to the so-called Green Deal. Um, wouldn't it be better to just um, ride the tide of popular ideas until they fade? People will find something else to get excited about, and then we just carry on as, as normal. Uh-huh. Okay. So it's just a fad. We'll get over it. We'll find something else to worry about. So I'm just throwing a question now for, to think about, um, but not necessarily to answer immediately because I'll come back to the panel shortly. But uh, Daniel said about productivity, that it's about producing more stuff in less time, effectively, or with less labor. But for a lot of Greens, they would say, actually, what we should be doing is making less, do with less stuff full stop. You know, uh, living far much more, you know, on, on, on less. So is that something you would agree with? Uh, do you think that we should try to do make do with less? Or do you think that um, that actually that's a problem and that we should we should be trying to be wealthier and, and all that sort of stuff? Anyway, James. I, I was going to slightly argue with uh, Daniel a bit on that because I think the um, um, as attractive as the argument is that the... Um, uh, labour productivity is often also resource productivity, which I think you know uh, folds all kinds of uh, advances, technological advances, and reinscribes them as green advances. I don't think that necessarily gets to grips with the policy uh, difficulties that um, our environment, environmental policies have created for energy efficiency and resource efficiency over recent times, which. Um, uh, ben started enumerating right at the beginning. And, you know, it's, it's quite astonishing, you know, that we had this push to have diesel cars and then we discovered that diesel cars were bad, not good, and that we, we thought it was a great idea to clad all our um, uh, tower blocks in um, uh, uh, flammable material because that was a great idea to reduce uh, uh, loss of energy. And that now we're... I mean, loads of people are being getting terrible haircut because they're losing money on these uh, flats that they've got to uh, take the stuff off. And um, I think we, uh, I don't think any of this can be taken too seriously unless the um, policy makers, or us, let's say, are seriously reflecting on why those things keep going wrong. And what is it about... Uh, so, uh, uh, as la I, mean, I mean, it's an attractive idea that all productivity increase is green, uh, but it, it's sidestepping the problem, which is that actual practical policy uh, pursuits that uh, address this, this agenda, have a, a, a lot of them have been very, very destructive. Right. Okay. So let's, I'll go, go back to the panel now, let them, because uh, there's quite a lot on the table, uh, let them say their piece about things, and I'll come back, back out for more points and questions. And Martin... You're itching. Yeah, you? no, I, I think I've got an answer to every question, which is great. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, the, the, the first question's a great one. It's actually tied to the last, I think, which is um, how do you know, should you invest in electric cars or hydrogen cars and whatever? And I actually go to Ben's um, point, which is um, we should just be better at, at implementing whatever we decide because neither are wrong, right? But switching to clean emission vehicles is a good thing, and there's no dispute. Which technology? The market will kind of figure that out. But what I, what I want to say um, to, to Ben's point, and go back to basic insulation, just here in London, there are a million uninsulated lofts and cavities 
still in London. It's appalling. It shouldn't happen. This is the most basic form of, of efficiency. I'm almost inclined to glue myself to the road in, in admiration for what they're trying to do. I won't. Because I think there's better ways of actually doing it. And I'll just very quickly mention um, about 10 years ago in Glasgow, one of the poorest neighborhoods, they picked 250 homes to put energy efficiency measures in. And they made the homeowners sign a loan agreement. Okay, no, no policy, nothing, just a loan agreement that for no money, but they would simply uh, fund the measures that were put in from the savings generated. And after three or four years, all of the savings were made. Of the 250 homes, there were no defaults on the loan, none. So we often overcomplicate policies and all sorts of things. And sometimes, you know, we should just think about the simplest, easiest way for, for things to get done. And I think more, more would get done. Quick comment on the, the, the battery point. I know it wasn't a question. Um, battery technology is evolving everywhere. Many don't even look at lithium. You know, I think this is um, an interesting market at the moment. I think it's, it's going to sort itself out. Uh, I'm not a fan of uh, nuclear, but maybe that's a separate question. Um, and then one of the comments I wanted to make, um, yeah, green. Uh, you know, green jobs, it's, it's tied to the preservation of the planet. That's what I would, I would say. If what is being done isn't beneficial or, is, or worse, is detrimental, we shouldn't be doing it. I think that's not an environmentalist speaking. That's just good long-term thinking for the sustainability of our planet for our kids, our grandkids, and others. Okay, that's great. Uh, ben, any thoughts? Yeah, to, to, to this point here about uh, uh, acting too soon, and James's point, why, why things keep going wrong. It's not often that I turn to Andrea Leadsom for insight, but what she said is certainly quite... Uh, candid and and uh, I hope it replies to Martin too and she said if you set a target for businesses so a regular regulatory end date like we've done with vehicle emissions then businesses will immediately get ahead of you they'll change their processes businesses will find a way to make it affordable they will compete with each other you'll see huge economies of scale and I, I've probably toned down her emphasis in, in speech so that that's why things go wrong and that's the risk of acting too soon is that she, a minister of state had absolutely no idea how her policies were going to turn into reality but she was absolutely sure that they would be um, uh, and I think she was r rather too optimistic in that sense and so and if I may answer Martin's point about the simplest and fastest way um, of dealing with problems. If the, the fastest way to dealing with problems of cold houses is to make energy cheaper. That's the fastest way. If there are, if there are 20 million homes that are, that are, that are insufficiently uh, insulated, then the worst possible thing you can do is close down nuclear power stations to make gas expensive um, and, and, uh, and so on, which, is, which has been the absolute religious preference of policymakers for the last 15 years or so. Um, uh, and, and I think that those chickens are coming home to roost. Um, I'm all for insulating houses, as and when people need to, but we shouldn't underestimate the cost of those at that scale. Um, that It's quite a big undertaking, and even, even pro-green 
um, as it were, uh, uh, estimates of that cost are that it will cost the equivalent to, to, to meet net zero targets, equivalent to the bricks and mortar, mortar uh, costs of each home that will be insulated. That, that, that's more than uh, making energy cheaper. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Vicky, any thoughts? Um... Yes. Thank you. Um, but in relation, just because it's just been said, to uh, the cost of heating a home, actually, apart from nuclear, where the deal that was struck was for very expensive uh, energy to come in the future, electricity, uh, prices that would be paid to EDF, the, European, the French company, um, who, was, who was building Hinkley Point, and that was part of the agreement, plus, of course, the government stepped in and basically guaranteed, if you like, the initial costs of, of the project. The rest of the policy was to have, uh, to assume that gas prices were going to be very cheap, which they were, and have been until the recent events that have taken place. So the assumption was not that they were going to penalise the consumer at the time because it would have been a terribly, terribly unpopular policy. Uh, the trouble is that right now we don't have enough, uh, even if we wanted to insulate everyone, we don't have enough people to do it. Uh, and we need to train them. It does not mean that they're all, they've all gone back to Europe, but we just never had enough people anyway who'd be able to do it. It's one of the reasons why the, the previous deal sort of fell through anyway. Um, so, so, but, but I wouldn't disagree that policies have been inconsistent, uh, which is true. Now, the, 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 the second thing is how, how you would get to the right result and how to avoid mistakes being made, such as on diesel cars, for example. Uh, and and it, rather than the Andrea Lesdom law, which you just proved is, is, doesn't work, in economics we use something called the good hearts. Law, which is uh, made a, the name is one a very well-known economist at the Bank of England, who said that if you put a target on something, then uh, what you see is unintended consequences. Another bit of the puzzle uh, starts going up, and in this particular case, of course, diesel. Uh, and you can make mistakes of that sort um, because people react to whatever it is that the market is telling them and the incentives that you've been given. The the, the fact that diesel was cheaper, that it was taxed less. Um, and lots of people invested in this, and it's, it's a disaster. But it does show what, I mean, we're on a path of understanding what the, the, the green manufacturing is going to be all about and what types of energy we're going to have in the future. Uh, relying on current technology doesn't make very much sense. I think what we need to be doing is taking a risk and investing all this money that I mentioned before in, in seeing whether uh, you know, various bits of things that you try might work. Um, and, you know, hydrogen is one, nuclear fusion, we've been talking about this, of course, for ages. Uh, but it means that there is a risk for the individual firms. So the real worry is that in the process, a lot of our uh, sectoral strength might disappear. Because in order to get to that type of innovation, which will give you, which, you know, uh, risk-taking, but at least we'll come up with maybe a mix of different things, which may mean that you do have electric vehicles, but you also have hydrogen-powered ones. Nothing wrong with, with, with having both. Um, the risk cannot be taken entirely by the manufacturers. You need to share that risk with government. And I don't think that has been quite realized. I mean, what you're finding, of course, is that the government is bribing a firm. You know, it's a Nissan now to, to do various things in Sunderland in a more green way. It wouldn't have happened otherwise. So the realization is beginning to creep in. We've always, of course, assisted various businesses coming in, but we need to be doing this in a much more systematic, risk-sharing way 
if we're not going to really endanger our manufacturing sector. Can I just answer one other, or at least touch on a very, very good point that was made. Do we need green? Because it's also a good thing to be doing, maybe uniting people. Is it a, I mean, yes, except that if you're just focusing on green, there's, you know, we need to do that, but we need to do other things too. You might just forget all the other stuff that needs to be done about social equality and all the other things that worry us uh, and that should be taken seriously. So green has to happen because scientists are quite clear on this, unless you're a science skeptic, and it needs to be done with good policies. Good policies are absolutely there, and realizing you can make mistakes and then compensate people for it. But it shouldn't be an exclusive thing to, to just make people feel happy, as, as some people do by just changing their behavior. The truth is, and I think I agree with what was said at the end, that, that the, we will achieve the goals through innovation, through investment and innovation. And to be able to do that, you need growth. You know, without growth, you don't have the ability to spend that money to, to do that. And remember that on current uh, forecast, energy demand will double between now and 2050. And, and we need to somehow rather be able to meet that demand. So we shouldn't think that it's just not going to happen. Let's just not grow here. But actually, you know, the world is, is growing. There are so many parts of the world that are still at a developing phase. And that's what they'll be doing. Daniel? Okay, well, uh, what my friend James with glasses uh, said over there uh, made me realize I'd be much too coy in my speech because, uh, I mean, I think you did misquote me because I didn't say that all productivity increases are green. What I think is that what we need to do, and this is a very bold statement that you need to take a long time to uh, work out how to do it, but in order to solve the problems that we are facing as society, particularly the economic problems I'm talking about, and those in relation to climate change, what we need to do is to increase productivity. That is not the same, it's, to my mind anyway, that's completely different from defining myself as a green. In fact, I would define myself very strongly as an anti-green. And why would I do that? I mean, this probably seems very strange to a lot of people, but it kind of relates to what Rob said, that for a lot of greens, and not all of them, what their goal is is to increase, sorry, is to decrease the amount that we consume as a society or as the world. We need to decrease consumption. Or at the very least, they're very nervous about increases in consumption uh, and having a more productive society, so they want to rein them back and curb them, or they want to be extremely cautious about them. So what, what I'm arguing, um, what I should have spelled out much more clearly, is we need to go directly against the green agenda. We need to focus on producing more. We need to focus on innovation. We need to focus on economic growth. And although they're very coy about saying it, the, the, it seems to me the Greens, and here I'm not talking about the Green Party, I'm talking about a kind of mainstream trend among all the political parties, is at the very least to say we need to be really, really cautious and really careful about promoting economic growth because that could have all sorts of damaging side effects. So I'm not at all promoting green ideas. I think green ideas are, are wrong, counterproductive. The self-professed greens saying that we should curb consumption are going in exactly the wrong direction in terms of solving our economic problems and, ironically, even solving the problems of climate change that they talk about so much. Right, OK, that's... Fairly provocative stuff. So, um, got a hand there, and then there's some hands further back. Uh, yeah, just on that uh, last point, um, don't you think there's a problem of 
say, will we introduce uh, new products to the market or uh, new sources of energy to, to energy suppliers that they just add this on top of what they're already producing instead of replacing um, what they were already producing because, uh, say, with like, to use a, an allegory, analogy, um, you release Diet Coke, um, you don't take Coke off the market. Um, so similarly, uh, what is there to incentivize uh, companies and, and energy distributors uh, to replacing uh, what they already produce with, with new sources of energy and, and such? Okay, yeah. I have actually moved to a place called Leven in Scotland, which and all the little towns around it are called Coal Town of something, Coal Town of this, because it's all used to be mining and all the, all the mining is gone. Uh, and now when I go down to the beach, um, I see two things. There's, there's two oil rigs parked in the Firth of Forth because the, the, there's, there isn't the demand to use them at this moment. So it's weird. Yeah. And then over to one side, there's two wi wind turbines. The little one always goes round. The big one goes round one, you know, once a week or something because the wind ain't blowing as much as it, <laughs> it normally does. So there's a question as well. What happens when the wind doesn't blow and you're, you're not I, either charging your batteries or powering the grid. So there, there are all these kind of uh, wrinkles uh, to be thought about as well. Right, let's see some more hands. I mean, your passionate plea for uh, better quality jobs, I think it's probably something all of us uh, uh, would agree with. But that just emphasizes the question I wanted to ask, which is why is it, given what Ben described, which was, uh, you think you said 13 years, you could probably go back longer, of... A, an attachment, top level, across businesses to this green agenda or the green jobs or the green industrial revolution, and so little has happened. Uh, why, given that record, is there still such faith amongst uh, the political elites in this being a solution to the problem of not enough decent jobs being out there? Um, I share with you that this is probably the biggest symptom of the problems of decline, of productive decline in the Western economies that we have had since the 80s, since what was called about as deindustrialization, a lack of enough decent, well-paying, high-productivity jobs in Britain, in, uh, in America, of course, in parts of Europe and so on. So that, that is the problem. We know that green jobs can be created. Uh, it just so happens that China has been creating most of the green jobs in the sense of defining green as something to do with reducing carbon, um, in that they have been successful in the solar panels and the batteries and the electric vehicles and so on. So in that sense, however you define it, good quality jobs can be created out of these technologies. But what flummoxes me is how putting the word green before the aspiration for better jobs somehow solves the problem of what have been the barriers within the advanced uh, countries, as opposed to in China, for being able to create any decent jobs. Just, so why is there such faith then, to conclude, why is there such faith in this as somehow solving the problem? Is it just desperation? Is it a desire to evade the problem of the lack of decent job creation? Is it, is it a, a distraction exercise? I, I'm really flummoxed as to why there is still such faith amongst the political class that this somehow can solve the problem of 40 years of deindustrialization within the Western economies. Um, I'm from a coal mining family, married into one. 
uh, in the northeast. And last year, without much fanfare or uh, newspaper reportage, I think the Newcastle Chronicle covered it, um, the very last ship sailed from the Tyne carrying coal, uh, the Bradley coal mine, um, uh, was not exhausted, but we failed to get permission to, to extend its operations. Um, there is, in fact, uh, a coal mine that has been planned at uh, Woodhouse in um, Cumbria, um, and it's been seven years on the planning, uh, planning application. It was going ahead, and then it's been stopped, and then it was going ahead again, and the government said they weren't going to intervene. And then James Hansen of NASA came into the conversation and uh, despite the fact that he's got no links with NASA anymore, um, turned the probably turned the debate and uh, COP26 as well. But I, I just wonder about, about Greens. Um, they talk a lot about food miles, but they never talk about coal miles and they never talk about uh, wood miles. So we now import wood from Canada and we burn it in tracks. That's, uh, to me, that seems like a nonsense. It doesn't seem very environmentally friendly. Um, we import coking coal from Poland. I think it comes from Poland, it comes from Eastern Europe, Europe anyway, uh, when we could be extracting it in Cumbria. And this is not coal that's going to be burned, despite what the BBC repeatedly says we, we must not burn any coal. This is coking coal. This is coal for steel. This is coal to build our economies. This is coal for uh, electric vehicles, if that's what you want. So I just wonder if the Greens actually do make the environment any better. I do wish, I do un don't understand what they're actually trying to achieve. Um, I think they think make things worse, and I don't think they uh, recognise a green job if it slapped them in the face. I think <clears throat> we have to distinguish between green jobs and green technologies. Uh, if you go down Putney High Street, where I live, it's the most polluted high street in Britain. The Guardian says so every January, and it must be true. Mm -hmm. uh, and air quality is a real issue. You know, I think we need some universals, and we all don't want to breathe that, right? They've just installed something as a forecaster that I predicted. I never thought it would come to there, where they've got a sort of large wooden pillar about this wide, covered in moss and green stuff, to absorb the, uh, you know, the pollution, and not just the CO2, not just the wider greenhouse gases of methane, but the pure dirt and particles that's in the atmosphere. Now, that's, there are no green jobs there, except in the making of it, and that's not very much. It's only wood and moss, but it's an automated system. It's, it's what's called fixed capital. If we move on to insulation, it's not only the case that uh, it's very hard to insulate millions of homes. If you check out the Obama weatherizing program, he'd have had to be president for 100 years for him to weatherize all the homes in the United States. But just yesterday it was announced that IKEA is making pre-insulated homes in a manufacturing plant in Derby, and they're setting them up in Knoll in Bristol, and it's all going swimmingly. There's just one problem, 600 homes a year. And, you know, that's not going to help us out very much. So it is automated. The technology is good. It's manufacturing. The insulation is already in it with the solar panels and all the rest of it. Now, if we turn to a third example, um, which involves you, Martin, because I'm not going to let you off, uh, the Siemens plant, I believe, building turbines or something like that in Tyneside, Right? Sorry? In Hull. 
in, in Hull, uh, or Hull, uh, to everybody else. Um, it, you know, it's, it's great stuff. I'm all behind it. Uh, but the problem is it's 500 jobs. Uh, no, 200 jobs, I think, and GE is 500 jobs. So we've got to face the fact that if you're going to be at all automated, which is what we need to be, then you know, you're not going to get that many jobs unless you go the hair shirt route where you say no to robots, no to technologies, no to Siemens, do it all by hand. Now, I just want to say that um, there's a, fi a final proposition, an example of technology, which is that if you take electric vehicles, everybody knows that they've got fewer parts than the normal stuff. The power electronics is, however, complex. There's much to go wrong. But it's fewer parts, therefore probably fewer jobs. It's one of the reasons that German trade unions oppose electric vehicles. So we've got to be very careful about what degree of automation is going into these things. And uh, you know, automation, yes. Labor intensity, we've got enough of that in Sweatshop Britain. Just to conclude, if I may, um, the, uh, I think we can say that just as, as you were trying to say, Martin, dirty jobs are often green jobs. We must admit, surely, that green jobs are often dirty jobs, if, you are, if you're following me, and I'm not certain you are. But you know, we know that what goes into electric vehicles is mined in the Democratic Republic of Congo, usually by children, by hand. Right? So you know, that is a dirty job. It's a green technology, so-called, but there's no such thing as a dirt-free green technology. Finally, the, um, people have referred to the fact that green today means inflationary gas prices in order to you know, raise the tariffs. I can't believe Boris is doing that. I, I just, it's hard, even with him, it's hard mm. to understand. Uh, they're not only inflationary, though, ladies and gentlemen. They are creating a bubble. And you know, I wrote an article for Spike, uh, and somebody rung me up from Spike and said, Could we, can we say you know, why the next, green crisis, the next financial crisis will be green? And I said down the phone, no, 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 that's too sharp. And he put it in, and he was right. Because uh, there's one thing you can say about this bubble, which is I, I um, wrote a, tweeted a thing just this week about all the wind turbine blades that are piling up in America, which cannot be recycled. Right? I just tweeted it, innocently enough. The next day, I get an email from America trying to send me wind turb sell me wind turbine parts, right? I'm only a... I know it's true, James. I, I, it's on my tweets, right? I'm only a lowly professor. You know, I'm not in the wind turbine business, right? <laughs> if they're emailing me saying, would you like a, a, a blade or a control system, right? I'm telling you we're headed for shit, right? Because, <laughs> you know, this is really, you know, a big bubble, and we're going to see it, you know, very soon. Okay, thank you very much. Yeah, it was just a quick one. Um, I've had a little bit of experience working in sort of local government years ago, and it came to the point about incentives that I think you mentioned right at the beginning. And the government tends to be really bad at backing a winning horse when it comes to new technologies. So couldn't we... And, and, and all they really serve to do, when they say, right, well, we want to insulate X hundred thousand homes, all they tend to do is encourage businesses, instead of innovating, to direct resources to just meeting and milking that government cash cow. So couldn't we instead say to business, look, there's money available, but make your business case. You know, you, you come up with the technology, you show you can do what you're doing, 
in whichever way suits you best and show it's actually better for the environment. And we will then provide a cash incentive. So innovation precedes money rather than the other way around. Right, okay, panel, I'm going to give you a leisurely three minutes each to, to come back on all these points, make some new ones, whatever you like. Martin, start. Right. Yeah, um, the very first question I thought was awesome, by the way, um, save us from what, because I should have questioned the title of this panel before agreeing to sit on it. I'd assumed it was save us from an unhabitable uh, planet, uh, which I actually think is quite a good thing to save, so I'm, I'm going to go with that. Um, the, the optimistic statement, I, I, I didn't see a lot of optimism in there. However, uh, wind farms um, are being built in Denmark, Norway, Germany, and 40% of the cost of building those is being spent right here in London on professional services, legal services, consulting services, late-stage manufacturing of components and parts and other things. So we should also think about, you know, backing this because it's not just about building wind farms off the coast of our own shores. These, this is an opportunity for us uh, everywhere. Um, uh, Rob, um, Rob, um, the wind will blow. So just, I just want to say that because you made a comment that you well, see a turbine not moving. But the next day, the wind's going to blow. And if it doesn't, the day after, it will definitely blow. So at some point, I feel like the wind is going to keep blowing. So I just wanted to say that. Um, focus on, yeah, this is great. Actually, Vicky, you made this point right at the beginning. We, it's really funny. When you talk about green jobs, we go back to wind farms, cars, um, you know, all the homes. Um, we should really focus on decarbonizing industry, big, big industry. We should think about the digital transformation as a big part of doing that. And in the process of those transformations, we should be, greening that um, uh, steel manufacturing process. And I agree with the gentleman with the coking coal, which is a comment I made earlier. I think for the next at least 15, 20 years, there are these transitional technologies, and we should be really backing those, understanding that there will be a point where they come to an end. How long have I got left? Um, One minute. All right, great. Uh, how can a job be green? Because it is. It's just everything's green, and that's great. <laughs> It's <laughs> um, the quickest answer I could give. And then here, yeah, green jobs versus green technology. I'm really pleased you mentioned air quality because it's not just about greenhouse gas emissions. Although we've signed up to the Paris Agreement, which does make nuclear power potentially difficult within the timeframes we're talking about. But in terms of local communities living in a place like London, it's, it, we have to focus on air quality emissions. People are dying prematurely every day because of poor air quality in London. Um, and I also agree with your point about when we manufacture things like batteries, this should be done responsibly. We should be making sure that they're being built to the standards that we would absolutely expect them to be built. So no child labor and um, rare minerals and, and, and other aspects. So, um, uh, and and uh, this question here, we, the government shouldn't back any horse. They should simply make it easier for businesses to engage and, and move forward, but they shouldn't be picking technologies. Right, great, thanks very much. Ben, your, your, uh, your plan for wind, I think it, you, need not, you need to be careful not to be giving away too many blank checks. Now, I saw uh, the other day a back of, uh, a qualified back of the envelope calculation that suggested that the battery requirements uh, for 
uh, a predictable uh, a shortage of wind in the UK would cost us at present rates four trillion pounds. So it's all about the numbers, ultimately, isn't it? Um, this quite, I, I mean, it may, may be off target, but I think it's really important um, or off, off topic. Well, uh, save us from what? And, and um, Phil's question there, why, why, is there still, why is this still rolling? Why is this ball still rolling? Now, if you, if you go and look at green, the green movement, such as it is, account um, of itself and how it managed to persuade uh, the government, the UK government, successive UK governments and the European Union um, to go about abolishing coal in short order and, 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 and to set targets that were punitive, essentially, rather than uh, creating the, the, an incentive for alternatives. It's quite simple. They took billions and billions of pounds from billionaires and they created an, a vast PR machine and they lobbied them. And the EU was, was, was an open door to them. The UK government was an open door to them. And I would, I would uh, to sort of underpin that point, I'd say the, the arrival at to of Tony Blair in Downing Street coincides with the first time, since, well, uh, as far as I could work out from election statistics, that more people didn't vote than voted for the winning party. Right, that there's, there's a separation, a political separation, as, as an, a phenomenon of elite politics going on, in which, which makes decision-making accessible to people with uh, huge amounts of money, which may actually speak to your point over there again, and about speculators and so forth. But it excludes us, uh, which, uh, which uh, I would also suggest is reflected in the public's unwillingness to, to, to buy into the climate, climate change agenda. Vicky. See, your time frame is a very good excuse if we can't answer some of the questions. So, right, I'm sorry I can't do them. Uh, but just going back to Francis's um, question uh, about what it's about, I mean, the interesting thing is that you, you probably, you know, you were around at the time as well, Francis. I, I was working for the government and I was rung up by someone in 10 Downing Street uh, saying that there was going to be a major speech uh, and uh, they were going to say that there were going to be, I'm now making that number up, uh, 450,000 jobs were going to be created over a period of time because of green. So there will be new jobs. There will be 400. So I said, I was, became very, very unpopular. Because I said, well, you can't, we can't actually put any figures there at all. I, at that time, my department was still in charge of, or partly of energy. Um, and uh, because, of course, you know, there's no guarantee these jobs will be additional. We have no idea what sort of jobs they would be because we didn't know what the technology was going to be at that time. We're not talking... Uh, 15 years ago, um, and um, uh, and also some other jobs will disappear. They may just be transferred to the new green jobs, supposedly in inverted commas. Anyway, they went ahead and made a speech saying there will be 450,000 uh, new jobs that were going to be created because of green. And of course, nobody can challenge it because we didn't have a clue uh, what it was going to be at all. Uh, so. Um, uh, but of course, what you need is to ensure the economy continues to function. But it needs, as someone was saying earlier, there, that you need it to function through the transition as well. Uh, and, and make sure that you don't ruin your, your, your sectors in the meantime, which you know, we are in danger of doing right now if we don't have the right policies. And indeed, when you are 
thinking about uh, you know, one particular measure or policy you put in place, you very often do not think about those unintended consequences again. Do you calculate exactly what was said earlier, you know, how much it actually costs environmentally to bring things from elsewhere if you're doing it just as a nation? And a lot of what's going on in the UK right now is to just demonstrate uh, that we're ahead of the game. Um, so we can influence what happens without necessarily thinking about the consequences would be economically. And the short-term consequences could be quite serious. And of course, they could also put people off. Now, the idea of insulating all those houses that was said before, um, and, and of course, we did the wrong things on, on some buildings with terrible consequences. Uh, I mean, the cost is estimated at the minimum of doing the house hand penetrator at 75 billion, it could actually be 150 billion. And we have a lot, we have a, a very big stock of old houses in this country. And also there are there it's lots of older people and not very well off people who live in there. So there is an issue of equality. Just going back again is green all embracing. We need to be really uh, careful about this. But there is a point that was made by the gentleman here at the front with a red t-shirt earlier, which is absolutely true that at the end we will be having cheaper energy if it is all renewable. And of course, you ask for more because you can do all sorts of things. But at the same time, if, you, if one major element of your, of your economy is, is, is considerably cheaper because it's renewable, you don't have to rely on or worry about what Russia does, what OPEC does, and so on, then it allows you, since we will be growing, it allows you to redistribute that money in a different way and spend more on other things, which, of course, will be good as long as, obviously, if all the manufacturing or the production is done in a more green way in the future, that won't be bad for the environment. So there are some positives if we think about that. The trouble is they come in the long term. It's not going to happen through changing our behavior. It's going to happen through a lot of spending, not backing one horse, but backing many, being prepared to accept that a transition is not going to be a green transition. We have to make do with whatever is good in the intermediate. So gas, nothing wrong with gas, really. Uh, as, as, and storage, that was mentioned before, an absolute essential. To be left in a position where we are in the worst position in Europe. Uh, is, and just one little point about Ben, what he said earlier, if I may, since you gave us this allowance, um, I'm taking now advantage of it. Is that you said that all these policies that were done didn't achieve anything. Actually, in terms of renewables, we have we now have a very large percentage of renewables going to your electricity sector, very often 50%. We've actually decarbonized very extensively. And Europe has done the same, in fact. Uh, so if you add, of course, nuclear as well for France. So, so it's not that all the policies haven't achieved anything. The question is, have they achieved them in the right way? That's a different issue altogether. Right, thank you. Vicky, uh, finally, Daniel. Yeah, well, as I said in my introduction, I think the kindest thing you can say about green jobs is that it's a meaningless concept. Because two, two of the panellists have said that all jobs are green. So why, then why not just talk about jobs? It doesn't make sense to me. Uh, I think that... Another problem, which is more philosophical and difficult to pin down in a minute or two, but I do think the whole, what the green thing really does, is it kind of, is, it's about a culture of limits. It's about saying we've got to be really cautious about how we, we grow, we've got to be really careful, uh, we can't grow too much, maybe we shouldn't grow at all. Uh, so I think in a way, that, and politicians are coy about saying that because they know that it won't be popular with the public if they're talking about imposing austerity green austerity, if you like, on the public. So they're coy about saying it, but to me, that is what green means, really, in this context, except people are coy about talking about it. Me, I would be quite pragmatic. So, for example, with renewables, I have no moral or political principle against renewables, but I think that 
the discussion has really underestimated the problems with them at the moment. So, for example, you, know, you don't just get clean energy from the sun or from wind power. If you want to build a wind turbine, for example, it's a really big industrial process to produce the wind power. You have to erect uh, the wind turbine. Uh, then you have days when the wind isn't blowing. So you have the problem of what's called intermittency, because a lot of the time the wind isn't blowing in, in many situations. And then at the end, you have to decommission these huge industrial structures and do something with them. So it, there are real problems associated with uh, these kind of technologies. Now, if you could, I mean, I think the person uh, towards the back made the point about battery technology. And I think if that could be improved in the future, then maybe you could deal with the problem of intermittency. Uh, and maybe you could have a higher proportion of energy generated by wind turbines. I'm not against that in principle, but as I understand it, you don't have that battery technology now in order to be able to do it on a large scale. Maybe in 5, 10, 20 years you will do. So in terms of what energy mix we need, I'm quite pragmatic. I think we do need some nuclear. I think there is a role for renewables. That's fine. But the touchstone, as I said, is we need to try and become a more uh, a richer, more productive, more innovative society that's how we can save ourselves, if you want to use that technology, uh, that terminology, uh, rather than just talking about green jobs, which to me is just a kind of meaningless concept. All right, thank you, Daniel. And thank the panel. Thanks again for listening to the Battlefest podcast. You can support us by subscribing, sharing and leaving us a review. Check back next week for more recordings from the Battle of Ideas Festival 2021.